series together, which we started last week, which is about how we build a genuine community of disciples here at Revolution, how we build a genuine community of disciples at this church. And the challenge is in that word, we, right? What can we do corporately to shape the church that we all share here? In week one, last week, we started by exploring a community of patient invitation and deep curiosity and generous trust. Those were the things that we talked about. And those traits are essential, I think, for keeping the doors of any church community open. But this week, what we need to do is we need to take a closer look at the other part of having open doors, right? And the other part of having open doors is asking, what reasons do we ever give people to stay, right? It's good to have an open door so people can come in, but what keeps them here? And this question matters because the truth is, right, that any community that takes discipleship seriously, which is what we are attempting to do this year, is going to be a community that's uncomfortable to be in at times. One of my favorite <clears throat> illustrations for talking to people about how to find the right church for them, whether it's this one or another one, is, is to think about like an archery target. You don't want to find a church that feels like a bullseye for you. Because if everything already feels perfect at the place that you're at, then you're never going to feel challenged. You're not going to grow there. But you also don't want to find a church that is so far out into the outer ring that you're endlessly uncomfortable. Because if you were there, you're going to find it hard to open yourself up to change, to feel safe enough to open yourself up to change. The reality is, right, that healthy communities are never going to be perfectly comfortable. What you're looking for is one that can feel safe not comfortable, but safe. And the key, I think, to doing that, to building a community like that, is to learn to live and love through disagreements. Living loving. You guys are all excited. You showed up to church, it's down week, and also, uh, you know, it's like the weather's changing, and here we're going to talk about how to fight well with each other. Cool. Um, all right, our focal text today is about the turning point moment in the story of the early church. But before we get there, I'm going to try and lighten the mood a little with something I don't ever do. It's the classic pastor joke. Like, I feel like I should wear a suit since I'm going to make a classic pastor joke. Caleb is already out. This is the same. All right. All right, here's the classic pastor joke. A man dies and goes to heaven. And at the pearly gates, he meets St. Peter, who asks him, what denomination were you? The man says, I was a Methodist. St. Peter says, all right, that works. You can come in. Uh, what you're going to want to do is you want to head down the hall to room 14, but here's the thing. You want to be extra quiet when you pass room 8. Don't make any noise. The man says, okay. He goes inside. Then a faithful woman shows up. St. Peter asks her the same question. She says, I was a Lutheran. He sends her to room 22. He gives her the same instruction. Be quiet when you pass room 8. The little boy shows up, says he was baptized Catholic. Peter sends him to room 10. And he shares the same warning. And then behind the boy, there's a man who's listening into all of this. And when it's his turn, he asks Peter, what's going on in room 8? And St. Peter says, oh, that's the Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> <laughs> all right. First of all, I'm not going to tell the pastor jokes. It's clear. But this church, this joke gets told in all sorts of churches, right? And the labels just get changed. I grew up being a Baptist until I heard it told about Methodists. Anyway, but anyway, she changed labels. But second of all, beyond that, this joke, I think, digs the single biggest reason in my experience why people leave churches. They leave, I think, because when we care about something as much as we care about our faith, 
it is hard not to take even the smallest disagreements super seriously, to take them even fatally. Now, on the surface, this sounds like a surmountable problem. Right? The history of the church is full of idealists who have tried to kind of help by parsing out the big issues from the little issues. And indeed, the Apostles' Creed, which we've been studying this year, is a specific part of that effort, right? Like, if it ain't in the Creed, it ain't something you need. That's like a way you can think about it. But over and over again in my life, I have seen churches break down not because they knew they were fighting over a small issue, right? But because they let the small issue get sucked into bigger issues. Let's take a look at, like, one of the examples. Here's what that looks like. The creeds don't say anything at all about whether a church should or should not encourage women to serve in leadership. But Paul says things about this in his letters to specific churches. And then those letters that Paul wrote are in the Bible. And the Nicene Creed does, in fact, say that God speaks through the prophets. And thus, the Bible and the books in it are holy. Thus, what Paul says must also be what God says. And so the fight then ceases to become about the issue and instead becomes about obedience to Scripture. And then once you get things to that point, it's just off to the races from there. There's like a fair amount of nodding. Like you've been, I didn't even explain it. You guys have done this. You've seen this. And this problem, right, it breaks communities apart in these two important ways that we need to think about. First, it makes people who feel deeply convicted about a particular controversy, incapable of trusting leaders who disagree. You care, your leader comes to a different view than you, and now you can't trust them because you say that they don't have the same views on scripture as you do. I've only been lead pastor for a little over five years. I've had many of these conversations with folks already. And the second thing, and the more serious thing to my mind is that it makes people who are clinging to the hope that Christian communities can really offer something different than the infighting they experience at work, or the bitterness that they witness between members of their own families, makes those people give up that hope and instead say, well, it's the same crap all over. The church is no different my house, and my job, and anywhere else. And what we need to discover, and to believe, not just me, not just you, but I think we need to believe as a community of people, is that loving through disagreements, creating space in this community for a diversity of views, and staying in the community, even when it's hard, aren't just good ideas, they are part of what church is meant to model in the world. They are essential components of who we are supposed to be. Our resilience when we disagree is a key part of our mission. Our willingness to be humble, our eagerness to extend grace to each other, these aren't just like strategies that I'm going to talk about today so that help us like get through times that are tough. These are the specific things we live for we're meant to prove the value of in a world where fighting doesn't really tend to work out. Now, all of this is stuff that the early church learned a long time ago. 
And what's fascinating is they learned it in a way that is both organic and inevitable. Here's how. As I know most of you know, right, both Jesus and his first disciples were all women and men Jewish. They lived in Judea in the first century during a time when that region of the world was under the control of the Roman Empire. This is also stuff you probably know. And one consequence of the ways that the Romans ruled particular peoples, um, and particularly people like the Jews, is that in order for the Jewish people to survive and to avoid assimilation into a Roman identity, Jews needed to be to make sure that they remained deeply and truly and purely Jews. Ancient customs that were distinct to Judaism needed to be respected. Markers between who was and who was not in the community needed to be clarified. And by far, the easiest and the most visible of those markers historically was the practice of male circumcision. Circumcised men were Jews. That's what it meant if you ran. I don't know what the circumstances are where you would notice that, but <laughs> if you did, you knew this was a Jewish man. Circumcised men were Jews. Uncircumcised men were Gentiles. And so we can assume with good grounds, right, that both Jesus and all of his male disciples who were Jews were all circumcised. But y'all are like, what is happening? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, we're going to get somewhere. One of the most troubling characteristics of Jesus' earthly ministry, right, was his radical inclusion of outsiders among his, like, group of friends. He reached out during his ministry to lapsed Jews. He reached out to marginalized Jews like the Samaritans and even to non-Jews like the people that he healed when he was in the region of the Decapolis. Now, for many, when they're just following Jesus around, like Jesus is breaking rules, he's breaking boundaries, and that's just Jesus being Jesus. We don't have to particularly worry about it. But once Jesus is gone, his followers face a major problem that he had not clearly prepared them for. And that was, if they were going to be like him, to imitate him by welcoming Gentiles into their community, then they were going to need to make decisions about those traditional Jewish markers that separate Gentile and Jewish men. After all, if a Gentile man wants to follow after Jesus, and Jesus was himself circumcised, then shouldn't he do that? And what about babies, right? Babies that are born to Christian parents. Should they, I guess, get snipped, right? It's been 2,000 years. We're still having this conversation. If you have had a male child and been in a hospital, you've had to make this choice, strangely. Story just got cut from the story. Like, there's a whole paragraph. We're done. Not going to <laughs> Moving on. Anyways, before long, we'll do it later, after the church. Uh, before long, the leaders of the church have this real controversy on their hands in the first century. Christian communities that were predominantly made up of Gentiles felt pretty sure that their faith in Jesus was enough and that and a surgery that's normally performed on a child now being performed on an adult was like extra. It was unnecessary. You didn't need to do that to be a Christian. However, communities that are Christian and made predominantly of Jews feel the opposite way. They feel like their brothers should follow the whole of Jesus' example and should be made like them even as adults. And so in the first century, folks are fighting and they're dividing. And just like with our own controversies, what ultimately happens is the holiness of Scripture gets invoked as a way of trying to figure out what to do. And eventually, this decision has to be made. Are we going to insist on this for adult Gentile men who become Christian, or are we not? And this 
describes as the Council of Jerusalem. There's a moment when the decision gets made. And here's how the Council goes. It's kind of a long story. I'm just going to read it, and then we'll talk about it. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The whole assembly kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, the church planters among the Gentiles, as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done among Christian Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen from its ruins. I will rebuild it, and I will set it up, so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. There are two big lessons I think that we can learn here. When faced with a controversy, we can look for what's living and we can look for what's gracious. Consider Peter first. If there's one thing that we know about Peter, it's that he loves to jump to the right answer in any debate. This often got him in trouble with Jesus, but it seems that by the time we get to Acts 15, he's learned to be patient and sensitive. He actually listens to a bunch of other people talk before he says anything. And what he says here when he does speak is that although there are certainly grounds for this gathering of Jewish men, right, to debate whether Gentiles should live by the law or should live by grace, which is the debate, what actually ought to be done is to look at the people under discussion first. He notes that this conversation is being held among circumcised Jewish men, and that's not who it's about. So instead of getting into arguments about these other people, what he does is he reflects on what he's actually seen in Christian Gentiles. And Exciting. I try not to move much. I didn't know I was getting that animated. I'm going to be very still. What Peter has seen among Christian Gentiles are the active fruits of the Spirit. He's met them, he's talked to them, he's looked at them, and they certainly look and seem like people who have already become Christians. The miraculous stuff in their hearts and their lives, that stuff has already happened. These men have acknowledged their sins already, they've repented of their sins already, and they have been met, that repentance has been met with God's grace. And so, in every meaningful respect, they are already Christians. So, Peter asks, what more is circumcision going to accomplish for them? Now, that 
solution to the debate sounds super easy when it's about an issue that you don't care about. And I'm going to speculate circumcision in the first century among Gentile men is an issue you don't care about. But what we can ask ourselves is, are we looking for answers in the same places when it comes to issues about which we do care? Before I pass judgment right, on who can or cannot be included in my church, do I pause to get to know the people for whom I am making a decision? To find out if what I'm considering withholding from them might actually be something they already have. Now, whether you are on the right side of the cultural aisle or on the left side of the cultural aisle, you should know that what I'm saying applies to both of you. Are there any issues, this is the critical question, are there any issues that you disagree about that are so significant you would actually stand up and say that the person on the other side of that issue, no matter their previous confession of sin, no matter their baptism, no matter their obedience to the Holy Spirit in their heart, that that person, because of your disagreement, because of how wrong they are, categorically will not stand next to you one day in heaven. Room 10, room 8, room 22, whatever room. Are you willing to say that? That because a person like baptizes an infant and you don't, they are not actually a brother or sister in Christ. Because they encourage women to preach. Because they vote to restrict abortion rights. Because they are gay or trans or because they admire Donald Trump. Are any of your disagreements about those things so serious to you that you would say that person, no matter the Holy Spirit's presence in their life, is no longer my brother or sister? What Peter voices here is that whatever somebody might be wrong about, if they are right about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, they are in already. And the last thing I think that you want is to be stuck in one little room of heaven with your earplugs in, right? While there is a bigger party than you ever dreamed of happening down the hall. So that's lesson one I think we learned from the Council of Jerusalem. We look for the fruit of the Holy Spirit in people's lives first. Let that guide you, even if it leads you to places that are uncomfortable for you. The second lesson we learn here, I think, comes not from Peter, but from James and his behavior. And James is interesting because in the Council of Jerusalem, he's the guy that actually does the argumentative thing that Christians always do. He is the guy who quotes the Bible in the conversation. But there's something incredible and interesting about how he quotes it and what he quotes. So remember the argument that is in front of them, right? It is about circumcision. And there, as it turns out, are tons of verses in the Old Testament of the Bible about circumcision, including some specific verses that speak directly to the requirements for circumcision for non-Jews who decide to assimilate into Jewish community. This is not an issue about which the Bible is ambiguous. There is clear instruction. It doesn't get much clearer than Exodus 12, 48, which reads like this. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat. 
mean, come on, James. Why are you not quoting this? Doesn't. James doesn't quote Exodus. He knows right there. Instead, he quotes Amos, a minor prophet. A minor prophet from whatever Who, once in the middle of chewing Israel out, says that ultimately God will restore Jerusalem into a city for the whole world. There is nothing in the passage from Amos about Christian Gentiles in Antioch or circumcision. What is here, though, is a vision of God's character. Amos depicts God as one who restores and one who includes. So why does James do this? I think what we see is that James goes to Scripture looking for grace rather than condemnation. Now look, I know that there are some of you who might be worried in this moment that I am up here taking the side. And you hear the word grace, and in 2023, grace sounds like a code word for things that at very minimum you disagree with, and perhaps at maximum you find dangerous to our common faith. But everybody, please hear me on this. James isn't just somebody. James is Jesus' brother. Moreover, James was not one of the disciples. What does that mean? Well, it means at the very least that James had some skepticism about his brother's claim to being the Messiah of the world. Reasonable. James wasn't alone in these doubts. But something happened to James along the way, most likely his brother's public execution and public resurrection, that has led him to see Jesus and to see what Scripture says about the Messiah differently. He's changed his mind. Why does James quote Amos instead of Moses? I think he does it because he knows that condemnation is easy, that grace is hard, and that trust is the hardest of all. When we face controversies as a church, we have to be willing to do a lot more than a quick search on a topic to find a verse and then beat somebody up with it. We have to ask and ask genuinely, does the thing that I want sound like what Jesus wants? Just like with that passage from Amos, we have to ask, is the thing that I want in keeping with God's character? If you think these questions ask for a little too much humility for you, especially if it's about something that you take very seriously, imagine for a moment what kind of humility was demanded of James. Not many of us are being asked to submit our eternal soul to our sibling. But looking for God in Scripture instead of looking for proof in Scripture is a good way to keep our hearts open even when things are uncomfortable for us. If we must err, right, I hope that we err on the side of trust. Trust in God to be bigger than we think. Trust in Jesus to keep loving us even if we get the issue wrong. And trust in the Spirit of God to be powerful and effective and transformative in our lives and in the lives of other people. All right. 
It's not a sermon unless there are three points. That's a rule. And so far, we've just had two points. Look for what work. Look for the work of the Holy Spirit in other people. Look for grace in Scripture over condemnation. And the third is going to require us skipping ahead a little bit and speeding up a bit because I know I'm running short on time. So at the center of the Council of Jerusalem is Paul. We haven't heard from him yet. Paul is the leading missionary among the Gentiles. He is a primary voice in seeking grace when it comes to these rules about circumcision. And he is one of the people that after the decision is made, the council sends back out to the Gentile churches to share this presumably good news for them. But something really strange happens when Paul leaves Jerusalem with that message in tow. And that is that he travels through a town called Lystra. And while he's there, he meets a young Jesus follower named Timothy. And Timothy's mother is Jewish, and his father is Greek. And Timothy has not been circumcised. Good news for Timothy, right? Perfect time for a guy to show up to say this isn't the rule anymore. But because Paul wants Timothy to accompany him and to accompany him to towns where this word about not requiring circumcision is going to be difficult for people to hear, the author of Acts writes this that Paul took Timothy and had him circumcised because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that Timothy's father was a Greek. And the grammar is misleading here, so I want to clarify. When he says he had him, Timothy signed off on this plan. This wasn't a coerced circumcision. It's hard to translate the Greek there, but that's, you know that it's okay. So that's the first red flag. Just let it go for a minute. But the point is, that even though this act was no longer necessary, Paul and Timothy both did it. They did it to avoid causing offense to the people they were trying to reach. So for Timothy and Paul, the mission was more important than propping up their rights or their certainty or what they have permission for. The people are more important to them than that permission. And I think this leads us to our third and final lesson of the morning, which is that we can look for opportunities to submit rather than to demand. We are not always going to get our way. But have you ever considered what it would mean to people, what it would mean to your friends or to your neighbors, the people that I talked about earlier who are hoping that the church really is something different, what it would mean to them if you were eager not to get your way? If you saw in your own disappointments an opportunity to submit rather than to demand. The question today is how do we stay? And the answer ultimately is simple. We choose to. We fall in love with the idea that this community isn't a place where we get what we want. That this is a community where we are challenged and transformed. That it's a place where we learn to listen where we learn to forgive, and where we learn to surrender. It's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be better than that. It's supposed to be love. Each and every person in here wonders if we are really acceptable at our ugliest. We wonder if there's a limit to how different we can actually be and still belong. And every other community in our lives trains us to fear that limit, that edge. Our jobs train us to fear whether or not we are going to cross over into being unlovable. Our neighborhoods pressure us to learn that, that line, that boundary, how bad of a neighbor I can be before the HOA gets called. And even our families, if we learned anything in the last six years, we've learned that even our families are not as safe 
they're not as safe and accepting of difference as we thought they might have been. And the truth is that churches in this country have let us all down too. First, we learned that we didn't really need them during the pandemic. And then we learned that we don't even really want them in all the political infighting that has been happening in churches ever since. But that isn't what we're meant to be. We are meant to be something different and something better and more hopeful. And that hope has to be something that is in all of our veins if it's actually what we live here at Revolution. So my challenge to you, my closing challenge is, is this. Will you stay if staying looks like the Council of Jerusalem? Will you be a part of something different, not for your own sake, but for the sake of modeling and demonstrating hope because here's the thing. If you find stuff that I say troubling or offensive sometimes, we need you here. We need differences in this church community. We even need disagreements. What is magical about Jesus' church shines when people demonstrate that love for each other matters more than being right or winning. Now, I want to be a community. I want to be a part of a community that lives like that. I hope that you do as well.